Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Lois Vossen is the executive director of Independent Lens and has been with the show since its inception as a primetime series on PBS. She is responsible for commissioning new films, programming the series, and working with filmmakers on editorial and broadcast issues. Independent Lens Films have now received 17 Emmy Awards, 16 George Foster Peabody Awards, five Alfred DuPont Columbia Journalism Awards, and eight Academy Award nominations. It is a phenomenal run, um, and uh, Lois Vossan has come to us because of her work. In addition to Independent Lens, she's also preparing to go to the Sundance Film Festival coming up in just about a week or so. And we're so honored to have with us one of the truly leading producers, leading lights in the world of documentary films, and that would be Lois Basson. Lois, welcome to Film School. Thank you so much, Mike. It's wonderful to be with you on this very rainy morning here in California. Yes, it is. Now, where are we reaching you? Are you in the Bay Area? Is that... I'm in San Francisco. Well, welcome. Uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, let's start with Independent Lens. You are now in your, what did we say, how many seasons have this, has this been? 17. 17. And you've been there since the beginning. Uh, what, well, let's go back to the beginning. For a weekly series showcasing uh, documentary film, what was the sort of the, on the, at the outset of, of Independent Lens, what was the hope that you would be able to accomplish with the series? Oh, that's a great question. Well, when I came um, to ITBS from Sundance, we had that first year nine films that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and only one of them got a broadcast slot on PBS. And I just thought that was really um, a shame, to put it mildly. And so we began to have conversations with PBS about the fact that they they had this opportunity to expand the footprint for independent documentary film and that there was an incredible portfolio of films coming through from ITVS and, you know, some of the minority consortia um, who also support filmmakers of color and diversity. And so it took a few years, but the real goal was to do that, was to create create a year-round footprint for independent documentary film on public television so that audiences across the country could have access to these films. And for a long time, our tagline was a film festival in your living room because I imagined all the towns that didn't have film festivals back then and didn't get to see a lot of these incredible films. Now, of course, so many towns have film festivals, but back then, you know, it was really much more rare. There was Sundance and there was a few other festivals out there. So that was the original goal, was to make sure that these incredible documentaries that were playing at film festivals got into people's living rooms. Was there a moment in that first season? Was there a sort of a, a series of films that you were you were screening on PBS where it you started to catch on? You got you got the sense that you were building an audience that that uh, maybe the network was beginning to sort of become 
more enthusiastic? Or was there something about that first or maybe even the second season where when you, you felt like we're really on the right track, was there a documentary that sort of landed with a big, uh, you know, splash? Yeah. What, what, what Was there something in that first couple of years? Yeah. Well, I would say the very first year, one of our films won the Best Documentary Emmy Award, which was a wonderful validation because that film would not have had a national broadcast if the series hadn't been available and it wouldn't have been eligible for Emmy consideration. So it became very clear very quickly that without this platform, a lot of great films would not only not be um, given the critical acclaim they deserved, but more importantly, wouldn't be getting out to audiences. And that particular film was by a woman filmmaker. It was her first film, and her father died in Vietnam um, a few weeks after she was born. And so she was now an adult, and she made a film about her her, her dad, and she retraced his life as a soldier in Vietnam and found out how he had died and talked to a lot of the soldiers who were with him. And it was a very, very uh, powerful film that looked at, you know, the reality of being the child of a soldier and the reality of that war. And so, uh, yeah, that was a very quick validation. And we realized that this really was an incredibly important place to champion films by first-time filmmakers, by um, new filmmakers who were, you know, just coming into the system, and more importantly, again, those independent voices, because there's no real gatekeeper in the sense that we give our filmmakers final cut and creative control, and so they're not making a film to please me. They're making the film that they need to make, and they often spend four years, five years, eight years making these films because they do a very deep dive, and so it's a bit of a miracle that then those films get on television for the whole country to see. So um, we were really, really excited to help create that year-round footprint with our friends at POV. So we're on for nine months, and then POV's on for three months. And so any, any week, um, viewers across the country can see great independent documentary film for free on public television. Yeah. I want to make a couple of points because for me, uh, I am old enough to have <clears throat> been around and seen, you know, so much about the the arc, of the development of ind of independent filmmaking, but also documentary filmmaking, which I consider to be independent filmmaking you know, by definition. It and um, and to and just to celebrate the the support that PBS as a network has provided for for filmmakers over the last I'll say 35 40 years and I'll I'll go back to a program that I think still has has had an influence uh the the film um the film the series called the 90s the uh mm -hmm. where where they it was a series that focused on people who were literally just would pick up a camera film whatever was in front of them essentially and then that would become part of a program and it was such a such an eye-opening series because it was from filmmakers from people around the world. It really promoted the idea of your issues are our issues. These are things that are happening to us. They will be happening to you if you're not careful. Those kinds of things. I remember being so transfixed by that program and how it changed. It, it really kind of opened up so many um, uh opportunities and, and in my mind so many possibilities with filmmaking 
And then it's just carried forward in the tradition of POV and independent lens and so forth and so on. Um, do you remember the program? Are you familiar with the? Yes, I do. And, and I think what you just said is really paramount to why we keep doing what we're doing. Um, I often, half jokingly, but actually seriously, refer to PBS as the original independent film channel because they have been supporting documentary film and even independent documentary film for decades. Yeah. I mean, literally for now going on 40 years. Yeah. And so they were there before anybody else. I mean, way back to the American Family um, yeah. the series in the 1970s that really was groundbreaking in terms of cinema verite and following this American family through, um, you know, the transitions in their life. So, yes, I remember the series, and I feel the same way, that it, at PBS has always been a real touchstone for this kind of work. Um, I also did just want to say, I should have mentioned that the film I was referring to is Tracy Trago's beautiful film, Be Good, Smile Pretty. If any of the listeners are interested in that, that film I was referring to earlier. Okay. She's an L.A.-based filmmaker, ironically. Yeah, I, I I had her on for uh, uh, this uh, um, abortion. Uh, tell 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 our stories or. Uh, oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, it okay. I'm gonna sort of I'm I want to get into what what is currently on the schedule for um, for this year's uh, for this season's uh, um, independent lens, but before I do, <laughs> real quick, real quick detour, and that is, are, are there are there sort of touchstone documentaries for you in your sort of as you become more and more uh, uh, about in uh, documentary? I can't talk more and more about documentary filmmaking and filmmakers. Are there a couple of of uh, documentaries that you sort of changed you or had such a tremendous impact on it, you that you wanted to pursue this in your life? Can you name a that's a great question. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, a documentary called Sherman's March. Oh yeah, which was pretty fundamental in terms of realizing how uh, the filmmaker being part of a story could be transformative. And I mean, I'm I don't feel like every filmmaker should be in every film by any means. And I'm I'm often asking filmmakers, do you really need to be in the film? Because sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But that particular film was obviously um, really, you know, his story. And um, that was a very seminal, as well as Shoah. I mean, Shoah is one of those documentaries. Oh, yeah. The early work of the Penny Bakers, you know, yeah. um, Albert Maisel's. I mean, those, those films really were, when I was coming up and um, before I even started working at Sundance, it really did provide this window into the lives of everyday, ordinary people, which I thought was really fascinating, that I, as an audience member, could go into a community that I knew nothing about, basically as a fly on the wall, yeah. and really see how people lived their life. And I remember being sort of transfixed by that idea, because narrative film does the same thing, but you know it's made up. And with documentary film, you know, you really do get transformed into a different world. And I, I was really fascinated by that. But probably the one that had the most impact on me was Harlan County oh. by uh, the great filmmaker Barbara Koppel, yeah. because I'm from Minnesota, and it looked at unions in Minnesota. And I remember just feeling like 
really? You can make people, you can make movies about people who work at Hormel, you know, meatpacking factories? That can be a movie? I mean, it was like <laughs> mind-boggling to me at the time. And yet it was so extraordinary in terms of the topics that it talked about. And I could very much relate to those people because they weren't that far removed from my parents and aunts and uncles who were farmers. And a lot of the same issues applied. Um, So, yeah, that was really um, very, very um, enlightening for me to realize that film could also be a way to celebrate the lives of ordinary I like to call ordinary extraordinary people. Yeah, well, you mentioned Maisels and uh, you know, Grey Gardens and and uh, yeah, all those things. Pennebaker with Don't Look Back, uh, all these things. These are great films. Can I just real quick? I want to tell you what the films that sort of changed me uh, in that regard very quickly. Hearts and Minds. Well, uh, I was yeah. I was old yeah. enough uh, at that time to understand what was going on in the Vietnam War. Um, Thin Blue Line. And and then yeah. and then uh, Genghis Blues. Those are probably three or three of my top documentaries of of, and because and this is why. And I think you you, you articulated it as well. They put you in a place that you would otherwise never have that opportunity to be. You you're somewhere yes. you couldn't even imagine until you see it, and then you can imagine everything about it. And that's great filmmaking. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and all three that you mentioned also really moved people to want to make positive change in the world. I mean, especially Hearts and Minds and Thin Blue Line ended up, you know, influencing criminal justice. Yeah. So they have the ability to open people's eyes and actually make people say, I don't know if that's right. I'd like to change that. And right. that's a pretty powerful medium. Right. And, and and Genghis Blues was a story that you couldn't have made up if you had lived a thousand no. years <laughs> so that that's why i no, love that indeed. one that's what i that's what i love about that well let's talk about this season by the way on our minor listeners we're speaking with lois Vossen. she is the executive producer of the incredible T- pbs series called independent lens and uh we're already a few films into this year's uh season we just uh, we just got uh, the screening of uh, Rodents of Unusual Size, wonderful documentary, Rumble, which is a fantastic documentary about Native American influence on rock and roll. And then now we are approaching uh, one of my favorite documentaries of the year, Eugene Jarecki's The King. I, I don't know if you want to comment on any of these as we go through it, or if you want to sort of run through the through the, the schedule, uh, sort of the highlights or whatever you whatever you choose to do, Lois. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk about all of them. They're, they're such great films, but I like you. Uh, you've mentioned a few of the ones that, I mean, I love them all. They're all great films. <laughs> um, we're really excited to be co-presenting Won't You Be My Neighbor yes. with uh, HBO. That It will premiere on Independent Lens and HBO. I think The King is a film that was overlooked. It's an incredible uh, film. Eugene really has created an a really, really thoughtful way of thinking about the American dream and where we are right now as a country, what we've lost, what we still want to hold on to, all set in this incredible backdrop of um, Elvis Presley. 
Yeah. And it's a it's a moving film, but it's also funny and engaging and, and great music. I'm a huge fan of Rumble. I think um, the idea that we don't know all the incredible music that we have as a result of Native American musicians. Um, and I, we're really hopeful that this film will bring more awareness to yeah. the incredible contributions what, was, of all these great musicians. Wasn't that, wasn't that a great part of the film, going back to the early days of blues and how blues evolved and yeah. how native wasn't it oh wonderful God. yeah and yeah. tony bennett talking about you know mildred bailey yes. and how yeah. he wouldn't be tony bennett without this incredible stylist who i would venture to say very few people know and how incredible important it is to have artists like him like tony bennett bringing their their music and their art back for us to celebrate yeah and then of course people that we all know like robbie robertson and yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's just it's filled with yeah. incredible yeah. music. Link Ray. Yeah. And it's the kind of film that I love because you learn so much, but you don't even realize you're learning anything because <laughs> you're just enjoying the film so much. And, you know, listening to great songs that we all grew up with, the Jackson Brown section is really yeah. tremendous. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really great film. And um, I would also say we're really, really excited about Hale County this morning, this evening. It's um, another film that speaks to what I love to do with the series, which is to feature the work of first-time filmmakers and really bring them into the community. And Ramel Ross is, I think, a brilliant young filmmaker. He, um, he was a photographer, and his background with the visual arts is so apparent when you watch this film yeah. because he really does have a remarkable way of capturing things on film and telling a story. And it's a very, um, it's a different kind of film in that if people are looking for a very linear, you know, first act, second act, third act, this film kind of plays with form. Uh, and yet, talk about a film that takes you someplace you wouldn't otherwise have access to. It, it, yes. Um, for it's those a, of us who didn't grow up in an African-American family in the South. Yeah, it's a visceral film. It, I, I just spoke with him uh, last week about the film, and it, I, I put it as akin to a, a painting, and you're seeing brushstrokes as the painting comes into view. You're seeing these brushstrokes of these different uh, parts of these people's lives, and it, it ends up being this incredible mosaic of, of a life, of lives in, in this uh, Alabama county. It's a really, you're right, it's an incredible film. I think that's a perfect way of describing it, and I think he probably was very pleased with that description because I know that's what he was setting out to do. I mean, I remember when I met Ramel, maybe it was four years ago, at Sundance, and he showed me the footage, and I was just dumbfounded. The footage was so gorgeous, yeah. and, and yet it was just random footage. And I said, I remember I said to him, what are you going to do with this? And he said, I have no idea. That's why I'm meeting with people like you. <laughs> <laughs> and then he kept working on it, and he hooked up with a remarkable producer, uh, Jocelyn Barnes, and Sue Kim, and together that team, you know, but Ramel just deserves a huge amount of credit for his perseverance, but his yeah. talent, his innate talent. Um, the other film we're really excited about that's shortlisted for an Oscar is Charm City. Yeah. Marilyn Ness is, she was a, a, a producer on many, many great films that your viewers, I'm sorry, your listeners have no doubt seen. This is her directorial debut, and it's... Um, it's a bit like uh, the real life The Wire. I mean, we're set in Baltimore, yeah. 
of what I think is really uh, incredible about what she's done is she has found a way to give equal voice to the police as well as the activists who sometimes feel as though they're unheard by their community and also the politicians in the town in Baltimore who are trying to make positive change. And there's no good guy and no bad guy. There are people who are trying to do what they're trying to do for their community and not always getting it right. right. And it's a, it's a pretty raw portrait of Baltimore, but it also leaves you hopeful that when we come together and have a common goal, that we can start to make change in our community. And um, again, it's also beautifully shot and great characters. Yes. I mean, really compelling characters of a police officer um, who you just want to sort of go to lunch with because she's funny and endearing. Right. And so it's really um, a really, really thoughtful, wonderful film. And I'm very proud of Marilyn because she has, as I said, been supportive of so many other directors her whole career and to have her step in to the director's um, seat and do such a great job and have her first film shortlisted for an Oscar right. is really a testament to her talent. And also a testament to her perseverance and tenacity, and this is what is required of documentary filmmaking. She went through, I just saw her um, at an event, and she was talking about how she went through, I think, five different police commissioners, some crazy amount. of. So yep. every time they would have to go back and get permission to film, you know, again and again. And you see this arc in this film. You see an arc of the, uh, again, the, the perseverance of the people in the community on, uh, I forgot the street name, it's like C Street or something where, I can't, I, or Avenue, I'm sorry. Anyway, where the, where we have this gathering of a, the community essentially uh, performing triage on their community every day, trying yes. to trying to hold things. That's to, it, exactly. And it, it's, it, yeah, it's a wonderful documentary, absolutely. And I, w I want to go back very quickly, very quickly, to the very first uh, uh, documentary of the, the, uh, from this season, Man on Fire. We had Joel on, Joel uh, Fendelman, uh, and this was his master thesis. This was, uh, this was something that Man on Fire was, was started out as just, it was a part of a school, school education project, and it became this film. It's a, it's one of those stories I didn't know anything about. I'd never heard anything about this man who sets himself on fire. I don't think we're giving too much away when we say that. And and then and then this county and this sort of, uh, you know, all the machinations of the county. It's a, it's one of those films that kind of hangs around in your mind. It's hard to forget. Yeah. And uh, that's yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it as well, because I, I, it was interesting. I had a viewer write to me who was very upset with the film and said, you know, this is an old story. Everybody knows this story, and your, your film accomplished nothing. And oh. I said, you know, I'm sorry you felt that way, but actually a lot of people disagree because most of us didn't know the story. And more importantly, for me, the story does, again, bring us to a place where we have to talk about how we voice our concerns over injustice. Yeah. And, of course, this man went to an extreme, and, you know, like monks who have done a similar thing where they've set themselves on fire as a way to draw attention to something they see as profoundly unjust. I thought that was an important thing to talk about yeah. at a time when a lot of people are feeling, I mean, all of us, whatever your political beliefs, are feeling pretty strongly about not being heard and being shut out of the conversation. And I think that's true of people who, you know, hold 
a, a wide array of political beliefs. And yeah. so I thought that was interesting. But as you alluded to, one of the things that was even more interesting is the history that's hidden yes. behind the headlines. And I thought that was really what was essential about the film in terms of today's conversations. What is it that we've swept under the rug and not talked about? And, you know, generations pass, and some of that history gets forgotten, but it's sort of still in the DNA. It's still in the water. It's still there by osmosis. And racism is insidious. And I thought this documentary really tried to sort of shine a light on that. And as you said, it's becoming a theme with this conversation because it's not true of all of our filmmakers, but again, Joel's first film. And I thought it was really important to give a platform to another first-time filmmaker who did, again, spend uh, more time than some would to really try to uncover this story. And it is haunting. Yeah. I mean, those that history, the history of, you know, uh, what we've done in our country in terms of racism and yeah. lynchings and, you know, other forms of, uh, you know, crimes perpetrated because of racial injustice are worth remembering. I could not agree more, and that's exactly that's the reaction that I had to the film. I'm going to say one more film in your series, which I, which you almost want to put sunglasses on when you're watching it, People's Republic of Desire, okay? That yeah. is a film that will, I mean, seriously, if you, if you it will stimulate your, your eyeballs like you, yeah, like I don't know that you've seen for, for a while, and, and it is, uh, I wasn't sure what I was watching for about the first 15, 20 minutes of it. I, I really didn't know. I, I thought this is some kind of prank. I mean, it's so wild. Yeah. It is so wild that it takes a little bit of time to get used to it. But a remarkable documentary in terms of what it says about the, what's going on in China now, online streaming, what, how people are com- uh, so um, invested in it, and where we may be heading in sort of in a worldwide way of some plugging into this, into this uh, system of reinforcing what we want to see. This is the the issue I have with the Internet. We're constantly being told what we want to hear. And this is an example of of this writ large in terms of a society that's being transformed by this streaming and this online community. And whether it's good or bad, we won't know until it's too late. How's that? <laughs> right. That's, that's terrific. And, you know, that's, that is a terrific way to describe what the film is setting out to do. And for me, it also, when Hal pitched me this film, um, what I also really identified with is the isolation yeah. that the Internet can create. We think of it as this we you know we even call it social media and in fact what it's done is also created a, a lot of isolation and people who have community with people they never meet or see you know and you know i i have friends who will say to me i was talking to my friends today and then i realized what they just meant is they were you know on Facebook pages with each other. And I'm like, oh, you got into a fight. That might have been better if you'd actually spoken to each other on the phone rather than fighting on Facebook. And so I find the scenes, you know, I'm, I'm again, I remember looking at early footage with how, and you look at young people in China, some of them workers who earn very, very, very little money. They've come to the city to try to find a job because they can't get work in rural China anymore. And they live in tiny little rooms by themselves. And really, the only connection they have with other humans is 
on their phones or on their computers, and they don't have any money, and yet they give money to these idols. And so it also, to me, is a real reflection of even our culture, where we have these, you know, reality television idols who, you know, I don't want to be judgmental, but one would say are taking advantage of people in a way. Um, You know, the the financial disparity in people's lives, and yet certain people become millionaires and even more than millionaires because very poor people are so desperate to aspire to what they have. I find that topic fascinating. Like you have no money and yet you're willing to give almost the no, you know, the money you have to somebody you'll never meet just because you are aspiring to their wealth or their community. Yeah. It's nuts. I'll say it. It's nuts. What's going on with this kind of stuff? <laughs> and, and and yes, it is. And it's and it's not. It's again. It's not just an isolated part of our community, our social structure. It is. It's everywhere you you want it to be in terms of the reach of it. Is it reaches into every corner of our society. And you're right. Playing upon people's insecurities and and aspiring to be someone they're not. And they, they really should be who they are instead. And it's just, right, again, exactly. I understand the appeal. I understand why people are drawn to it, what, especially watching People's Republic of Desire. I get it. But at the same time, this is, again, a cautionary tale, or it should be a cautionary tale. And But, but people will watch this and think this is, this is really cool. I mean, and but, the, but they yeah. pull back the curtain. You see behind, whatever. This is one of those, again, when you watch this movie, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, really... Hang in there because initially you're not sure what you're watching. I'm. Uh, this was my reaction. I wasn't sure what I was watching, but as it goes on and you begin to understand sort of where where this film is and what it's trying to accomplish, because you see these avatars and that you see them doing things, you're not sure what they're doing and why and how and all that. So it's it, it's a film that is just a, a sensory. It's a it's a punch <laughs> to your senses. Yeah. But it's really. <laughs> it's trying to I think would, of a better way to put it. But. Yeah. <laughs> I think when when people see these young women, like the one young woman who's yeah. a singer in her bedroom, and she's making fifty thousand dollars a month because yeah. poor people generally, and or well, very wealthy oh, people, are paying her to be their online idol. I mean, it's a fascinating world. It I is. think if nothing else, as you just said, you don't really know what you're watching, and it very much is, as many of our films are, a cautionary tale. Yeah. The fact that it's set in China, I thought was interesting because. We want to think, well, we, we would never do that in America, but I think we actually do our own version of that already. Yeah. And uh, and it really does point to who do we decide are our heroes or the people we want to emulate. And that is also a really interesting conversation in today's world. Who is it that is actually setting the examples that we want to follow or teach our children or our grandchildren? The other film that I love that I think is um, deserving of people's uh, time is Black Memorabilia. Uh, it also, like um, some of the other films, is not a traditional, traditional documentary. Um, the filmmaker Chico Covard wanted to look at the um, manufacturing of, the consumption of, and the reclaiming of Black Memorabilia, which is everything from, you know, Aunt Jemima, you know, syrup bottles to slave memorabilia and Ku Klux Klan memorabilia. And the film is unusual in the format, but I think it will, there is no way to watch that film and not come away thinking about 
whoa, what what is this? Because people would be surprised. I was surprised to learn as we were making the film. And that was another film where I think we worked on it for four and a half years. There's more black memorabilia being manufactured and bought and sold now than ever before. It's actually spiked way up in America and in Europe and around the world. And there's um, when Tico was making the film, he sent me from China. I It's called a Jolly N-Word Bank. <laughs> and uh, it, in the opening of the film, you see these being made in this small town in rural China with painting on the big red lips. And I, I just thought, well, this must be a rarity. And, and in fact, no, it's in huge demand all over the world. So the film really tries in a very different way to look at why we have these things in the world and what they're doing right now, but then also people who are trying to, as I said, reclaim them and make us see them in a different way so that we understand that they are hurtful in terms of the imagery that they spread. Well, I, I haven't seen that. I will see that. It's coming up on uh on Independent Lens on uh, February 4th for the premiere, Black Memorabilia. I'll check that out. That sounds great. I think you'll appreciate it, Mike. Uh, you, you, you're a very thoughtful reviewer, so I think you'll be like, wow, <laughs> that's uh, a different way to look at things. Uh, well, listen, you're, you've, you're becoming my new catnip here. I, 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 have to, I know we've been on the here for a little while. I've taken up a lot of your time today. Last thing, you're heading off to Sundance. Well, tell us just, you know, as much as you want about uh, how excited you are to be going back to Sundance again as as an alumni and now and, and as you go back as uh, the executive producer of Independent Lens. Tell us a little bit about what, you're, what you have in store. Sure. Um, well, I was very, very fortunate to work at Sundance back in 1990 to 1995 was my last film festival when I was on staff. So it was five great years, and it was back when the festival was kind of a small child, a baby. Uh, we used to have to pay people to come to the festival. We used to pay the press <laughs> to come and cover the festival. And uh, Redford always tells this story, but it's absolutely true. We had... Um, a special event where we honored Denzel Washington and we were out on the street giving away tickets like will you come in Denzel Washington's inside and we're going to give him an award <laughs> uh, just to fill the theater so it was a very different time I created the shuttle system when I was there so oh, um, anyhow it was it was a great part of my my life and my career I really I really loved the years I spent at Sundance and lifelong friends that I made there so when I go back it, it is like going back to see friends because there are, believe it or not, still some people working there, <laughs> either on the staff or as volunteers. Um, so it feels like homecoming for me. But this year we're especially excited because we have five films that are premiering. Three of them are films that were commissioned for Independent Lens and are in the documentary competition. And all three of them are really, really incredible films. The first one is called Always in Season by a wonderful filmmaker, Jackie Olive. Um, Jackie, it's her first film, and um, it looks at contemporary lynchings in the South, the fact that we still do have this problem, and through that lens, the history of lynching. Um, And it's a really thoughtful film. Jackie worked on it for many, many years, very engaging, getting a lot of buzz. The second film is called Bedlam by a filmmaker named Ken Rosenberg and his producer, Peter Miller. And it's a film that looks at mental health and criminal justice. 
um, the filmmaker is a part of the story because the issue is a part of his life and his family. It's a really, really, really important issue in terms of homelessness and the mentally ill and prisons and how we as a country when we close down all the mental institutions and basically put people out on the street, how they have now been criminalized. And is, is, it asks the question, is that what we want as a country, that people with different forms of mental illness, bipolar, um, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. that they end up in the criminal justice system? And sometimes, you know, a far worse fate happens to them. So uh, not... You know, not the happiest of films to watch, but really important film. And then the last film is called One Child Nation by Nanfu Wang. Oh. And Nanfu has been on our series before. And I'm sure you've interviewed her because she yeah. is yeah. a dynamo. Yeah. There is they, she. She gets more done in an hour than most people do in three days. She's just <laughs> the most incredible woman I've ever met, and a, a young mother and. She makes a film every year. She just she just is amazing to me. Yeah. This particular film was an idea that was brought to her about China's one-child policy. And at first she kind of resisted. She's Chinese. She was born in China, raised in China, and came to America as an adult. But then she realized that she was uniquely qualified to tell this story. And then she became pregnant and had a baby of her own. And so it really looks at the the repercussions of China's one-child policy, which was something I was fascinated with as a, uh, you know, in my life when it was happening. Like, wow, because I came came from a big family. There were, you know, 10 of us and, you know, dairy farmers who just had a bunch of kids. The idea that families were forced to just have one child always fascinated me. And uh, Nanfu really gets underneath that that issue and looks at it from the perspective of people who lived through it. So all three of those films are premiering next week uh, in the documentary competition. And we're really, really proud to be a part of those films and to have supported those great filmmakers. That's and fa- all three will be coming next season to Independent Land. There you go. Well, there and that's a beautiful place to to sort of uh, put to put a bow on this conversation. It has been amazing. I seriously mean this when I say it. Anytime you want to talk about films, I could do. We could do the eight-hour version of Film School Radio if you wanted to. I swear to you, I, I wouldn't <laughs> stop. And uh, this has been fantastic. I and so appreciate what you do as uh, as part of what you love, which is filmmaking, supporting filmmakers, being a part of this community, and really the the muscle that you have to be able to, to put together independent lens and be a part of this community on PBS that is so supportive of filmmakers and very documentary filmmakers. I cannot underscore that enough, how important it is that we see an unvarnished look at our lives and, and the people in them. And this is what you do. And so thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being a part of Film School Radio. Um, once again, we've been speaking with Lois Vossen, the, the uh, executive producer of Independent Lens. Anytime, feel free to pick up the phone and come back on. I would love to have you back on. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been fabulous talking to you, and I look forward to being back on. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.